Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Good evening and welcome to Club Book with our guest, Brendan Slocum. My name is Lee Bynum and I serve as Minnesota Opera's Vice President for Impact, where I lead the company's education, community engagement, and inclusion, diversity, equity, and access initiatives, as well as co-host Minnesota Opera's The Score podcast. Today marks the one year anniversary of my family's move to the Twin Cities, and I can think of no better way to commemorate the occasion than with this wonderful conversation with Brendan. Before I introduce tonight's guest properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing him to us. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Hennepin County Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talks. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. And now for our featured event. Brendan Slocum is a classically trained violinist and accomplished music educator. During his own education at the University of Carolina Greensboro, Slocum served as concert master for the university's symphony. Slocum has since performed violin and guest conducted for renowned orchestras that include Washington Metropolitan Symphony. Over his two decade teaching career, Slocum has earned accolades, including Teacher of the Year for his district, the Noble Teacher of Distinction Honorific, and a spot in Who's Who Among Americans Teacher. His much anticipated novel, The Violin Conspiracy, takes place against a backdrop the author knows well, the fiercely competitive world of professional classical musicians. Intrepid protagonist Ray McMillan, who likes Slocum is a black violinist from North Carolina, is shocked to discover that his family's beat-up heirloom fiddle is in fact a priceless Stradivarius. Soon after this life-changing revelation, however, the rising star's fortune take a turn for the worse. Publishers Weekly calls the violin conspiracy, quote, a gripping debut. Slocum sensitively portrays Ray's resilience in the face of extreme racism. 
After a short talk by our guests and some initial questions from me, we'll have time for an audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook, or our tech manager will route them to me. If you'd prefer to contribute a question a bit more anonymously, you may send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. That's clubbookmn at gmail.com. So I'll posit to you, Brendan, a mix of my own um, and some pre-submitted audience questions. The first question to you is this. Could you tell us just a bit more about the novel and its genesis? Absolutely, and thank you very much for uh, having me here, Lee. It's it's um, my pleasure to be here in conversation with you tonight. Um, Violent Conspiracy, uh, well, basically, it's the story of Ray McMillan, who discovers that his old family fiddle is a priceless Stradivarius, and this uh, discovery catapults him into superstardom in the world of classical music, and right before the Tchaikovsky competition, which is the Olympics of classical music, his violin is stolen. Will he get to compete Will he win? Will he find out who took it? All the answers are in the violin conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was it was a uh, interesting labor of love over the summer of 2020. Um, you know, I was sitting at home like everyone else in the world, just uh, except I was eating and getting fatter and fatter and fatter. <laughs> so uh, I was like, I need to do something else. So I, I got out and I started running in and I saw an ad for selling books in the age of COVID. Um, okay, well, sure, I'll try my hand. Um, I submitted a manuscript, it was terrible and rightfully <laughs> so rejected. Uh, but I did get some really good advice from one of the agents who said, you know, you've got a good voice, so write what you know and, and, and write honestly. And I did. I sent a few chapters of The Violin Conspiracy in, and here we are. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's a really, really fantastic book. And as I shared with you before the interview, Ray and I also share some biographical details as I also grew up in the orchestra, played well into my 20s, and I'm from Virginia, which is hop, skip, and a jump away. Um, and I will definitely say you do a masterful job at capturing the isolation that so many people of color feel while in classical music, right? Um, can I ask you, why was this an important facet to cover? Um, to me, it's one of those things where we, like you mentioned, we we do deal with these types of issues and, and they're, they're very real. Um, our perspective is often not heard uh, and often not believed, to be honest. And uh, I felt like the timing was right for these types of stories. Uh, that people were much more receptive to receive these types of stories, you know, with, with all the events that took place during 2020. It, it just, you know, the timing was right. And uh, I'm glad that uh, people have been so receptive to them. Um, lots of people that I've talked to, including uh, my team, like my editors and, and my readers, they are just kind of like, wow, things like this really don't happen. This is a bit over the top. Nah, I think you're just, this is, this is too much. Let's, let's, let's reel it in a little bit. And, you know, it was a fight to actually get some of these um, instances in the book because their perspectives were a lot different than mine. And I, I had to fight to get them to understand that my perspective is no less valid than yours. It's just different. Absolutely. And may I ask, what has the response to the violin conspiracy been within the classical music world? And in particular, have you found that it's resonated with other musicians of color? 
I actually have a great deal. Um, the, the response from the classical music world has been, it's been overwhelming. Um, it's, it's very validating. It's, it's nice to know that uh, people who do the same thing that you do, they get it and they appreciate your, they appreciate all of the, the realism, you know, the, the accuracies. Uh, one of my friends who's also a string player said, you know, when I read that he took the violin and put it up to his jaw as opposed to putting it on his chin. I knew exactly, I knew you knew what you were talking about and it made me feel so good. I'm like, all right, okay, yeah, I know a little something. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, the response has really been overwhelming. People have uh, seemed to really gravitate towards it, not only because of the uh, discriminatory aspects that they were completely unaware of before, it's really brought a lot of that to uh, their attention. Um, but be just because of the story of Ray's resilience, people have really, um, really just res it's resonated a lot with people. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I have to say that for me, it was hard to read this and not be reminded of Elijah McClain, the black violinist whose life was cut short, tragically due to misconduct by three police officers and two paramedics in 2019. Mm -hmm. As you were writing this novel in 2020, did this or other instances of police brutality against black people contour what you ended up writing or how you approached it? Absolutely. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, a, as a black man and a musician and a violinist, that one that one hit me really hard. And um, I've dealt with, you know, I, I've, I've dealt with the cops and, you know, they they I don't know what goes. I, I like to be an optimist, but sometimes you just don't know what goes through people's heads. And um, a lot of those experiences in the book are my own personal experiences. And you know, I was I was just thinking about uh, Elijah today, and I was like, that could have been me. That could have been me at any point. And you know, it's just, it, it's really sad. And and so it actually helped me to formulate a lot of the messages in the violent conspiracy. It was, you know, I've been holding on to these stories for a long time, and yeah, if I'm going to tell it, I want to make sure that I tell it as accurately as possible, and to make sure that people get the pain and the frustration that we have to go through and the fear, you know, that that we are constantly living with and have been living with for a very long time. So, um, yeah, a lot of it was uh, shaped by events that, you know, tragic events. Yeah, thank you. And and I will say, like, it was just a, a really powerful moment of feeling seen in the mm -hmm. in the community in a way that I don't know that we always get to. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'd love to share the first of several questions from the audience. Um, this one reads, I freely admit that I don't know much about the music world. However, everyone and their uncle has heard of a Stradivarius. What does the term mean and what makes them so special? Do you think they deserve the hype they get in popular culture? Answering the last part first, absolutely, 100%. They live up to the hype. Um, the Stradivarius is a Stradivarius. I, they were all uh, made by Antonio Stradivari, and he was a violin maker in Italy in the, I believe it's 17th century. Um, no one knows what makes a Strad a Strad, Strad for short. The only way to truly find out, you know, you can test the varnish, you can test the wood, you can test the, the construction, you can test the size and the shape and all the measurements. But the only way to really find out what makes a Strad as good as it is, is to break one open and go from the inside out. And there's no one willing to break open a multi-million dollar instrument to find out. Absolutely. 
Um, so your novel ends on a beautiful note where Ray gives back through the mentoring of another young musician of color. And in fact, mentorship plays a really powerful note, uh, role throughout the novel. And I have to say the character of Janice is particularly compelling and, and very, very vivid. Um, why was it important for you to share these lineages of mentorship for Black musicians? I feel, and just my own personal experience, I would not be where I am right now were it not for some fantastic mentors. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're more than friends. They're, they're like my family. Um, my Dr. Janice Stevens is my old violin teacher, Dr. Rochelle Vetter Huang. She taught me how to play the violin. She taught me how to teach. And this book, the character of Janice was the least that I could do to show my appreciation to her. Um, as you know, as as young people and as musicians in general, when we're starting out, we we come up across so many obstacles. And being you know black men, we come up with twice as many obstacles. And just having someone that you know is in your corner, who you know is rooting for you, and not just words and actions as well, is so incredibly important. And uh, my teacher did all of that for me. I, like I said, I wouldn't be here if were it not for her. And I wanted to pay tribute to her uh, in the character of Janice. And I'm I'm so glad you did. She was such a, a familiar type, right? Yeah. And you know, it brought back a lot of very special memories for me of, of my own Janice. Mm -hmm. Um and I kind of want to pull on this thread a little bit about what you are painting as a very different experience in the orchestra that you would have as a black man than you would have, you know, our white counterparts, for instance. For those who haven't read the novels or who are not from the classical music world, could you say a little bit about what what's different about these experiences, the kind of microaggressions and other experiences that folks of color have in orchestras? Oh, absolutely. I, I, again, speaking from my own personal experience, you know, uh, as a conductor and a player, you don't get the benefit of the doubt that you are capable. You, you, I rarely have gotten that. I will walk into a room or walk into a rehearsal. Okay, well, yeah, we need that table moved over there. Or the garbage can is over there. And, you know, people think that I'm one of the maintenance people or, or you know, one of the cleaning people. And, you know, you pull out your violin and they automatically assume, uh, okay, well, I guess we needed to fill a quota or something. And, you know, you, 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 you constantly have to prove yourself and, and you can't miss a note. And when you don't miss a note, you get comments like, oh, you're so much better than I thought you would be. You know, and it's like, that's not a compliment. I don't know why you're, why are you saying that to me? Like, I should like, thank you for that. Are you serious? I'm, I'm just as capable as you are. And it, it happens a lot. It, it's, it's, it's very sad. And I, like I said, I'm an optimist and sometimes I don't think people even realize that that they're doing it and you know that doesn't make it any better. But um, books like this, I, I hope will bring an awareness to people that stop looking at my appearance, don't look at my color, don't look at the fact that I've got tattoos and an earring, that doesn't mean that I'm not capable, you know, look at me for what it is that I can do. Let me do the same thing that you do to prove yourself. Absolutely. And, you know, one of my favorite moments in the novel was this, the conversation that Ray is having with his grandmother early mm -hmm. on, where she reminds him of what I think so many African Americans here growing up that you have to be twice as good mm -hmm. to get even a foot through the door, right? And I think the Absolutely. way that you are able to paint that throughout the novel is really, really extraordinary.
Thank you very much. I, I could hear my grandmother right over my shoulder as I was writing that. I knew it. I knew it. It's like, yep, this is going in. Um, another question from the audience. Is the harrowing episode outside Baton Rouge based on a true story from your own life and travels? And what parts of Ray are autobiographical and in what ways is he unlike you? Oh, I'm going to start with the latter. Uh, Ray is unlike me in the sense that he is a much better player than I ever would hope to be. I wish that I was at Ray's level um, of, of technique and capability. Uh, I'm, I'm living a bit vicariously through him. Had I started when I was four or five, I probably would be, but yeah, I started when I was nine. And, you know, that's a little late in the violin world if you're going to be a soloist. Um, autobiotic, autobiographical, yes. I'm going to give a number, 92%. <laughs> of the story he is 92%, not, not a shred more. Um, a lot of the experiences in the book are my own experiences and the Baton Rouge scene in particular. Whew, that was a summer of 2000. This was pre-GPS, pre-technology and everything. Um, it, was, it was scary. And I was, I was actually traveling through Baton Rouge. I was on a road trip with a friend of mine and uh, I was in my brand new 2000 uh, Honda Accord, black, like, all right, I'm going to the deep south. Um, no, we're going to get stopped. And my friend was white. And he's like, what are you talking about? I was like, just wait for it. <laughs> I, I made the illegal lane change. You know, there's no GPS. And I'm looking at a map. I was like, oh, the hotel is this way. So I had to turn left. No one on the road. It's a Sunday evening. And I turn left, put my signal on, whoop, lights and sirens. It's like, oh, here we go. Um, got out of the car, hands and knees, face down, you know, gun drawn on me. And it was, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. And that instance stuck with me for, it, it's still with me today. And it, it's just, I mean, it was real. The only difference between mine and Ray's experience is that Ray actually went to jail. Mm -hmm. I did not go to jail. I didn't even get a ticket. He was just doing his duty as a police officer. So he says, <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to exhale on that one too. Yeah. yeah it's um, alarmingly common, right? And I, I think something that sometimes surprises colleagues and counterparts of mine is, is that some of the things that they may assume that separates who gets negative attention from the police based on your bio or where you went mm -hmm. to school or where you, what your zip code is, right, mm -hmm. actually do not factor in to these situations whatsoever, right? And I think that all. came through so clearly in the piece. Um, one of my questions for you is around um, your own upbringing. Were there challenges for you to communicate to your family what it is that you wanted to do, that this was a viable career? And even if they didn't have the experience of knowing Black violinists, that there was still space for you to do this thing? Fantastic question. And thank you for asking that. I'm going to preface it by saying, if you haven't read the book, mom in the book is not my mom. My mom is <laughs> nothing like mom in the book. And that will make perfect sense once once you read it. Um, so I had to go on record as saying that. Um, yeah, it was it was um, I'm not going to say that it was easy. My, my family supported me as much as they could and as best as they, they knew how. Uh, like you mentioned, you know, black violinists, we, we weren't a thing. 
Um, and, you know, you have other kids doing other activities, football, basketball, video games, you know, reading, right, whatever. Um, I was into classical music and, and I, I was never actively discouraged. Um, when I started playing and, and things were going really well and I could actually play and it was like, oh, wow, you're, you know, you're doing okay. You, you know how to play that thing. And, you know, I would go to a gig or whatever. It's like, okay. I had earned the respect and appreciation from my my family then, but I did get advice to have something else to fall back on, you know, do education, you know, you can be a teacher and and, and in the event that the, you know, soloist thing doesn't work, it's probably a good idea to have a, a fallback and, you know, I'm glad I did. I, I love teaching. I absolutely love teaching. I love playing, but I love teaching as well. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, the, the power of teaching is, is this ability to replicate, right? And through the replications, also sometimes offer correctives from your own mm -hmm. experience. And I think that's a, a really fantastic thing that the music education world has captured you. I, I hope that there are more people who are musically inclined who think about that. And it's not just because I work with an education unit. I hope so, too. <laughs> Um, an another question from the audience, this one uh, really, really tickled me. I read a review that basically called the violin conspiracy music on the page. I didn't find it musical so much as theatrical. Characters and story jump off the page and it seems so prime for a movie or miniseries treatment. Can you share anything about screen rights? <laughs> Thank you, audience member who submitted that question. That's very kind of you. I, lo I love, I love how you, uh, how, how you put that. Um, yes, I am very, very fortunate that uh, Sony has snagged the rights to the Violin Conspiracy, um, and George Tillman, who directed The Hate You Give and Soul Food and Barbershop and just you know some of my favorite movies, he will uh, be directing the limited series and. We're not sure if it's going to be on HBO or Netflix or Hulu, but it will be coming to you soon. They've already got the screenplay. It's 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 going to be amazing. Um, just some of the discussions that we've had and the screenwriter that they've gotten, just um, the guy who wrote Mudbound, I, I think, is the screenwriter. And it's just going to be, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Plus, I get to see my name as uh, executive producer. That's, that's all. And I'm looking for a cameo at some point. <laughs> I'm very, very excited to hear that. As Maybe well. I can play old Ray. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, this was not the only question about a filmic treatment of the novel. So another question was, who is your fantasy casting for Ray? Uh, for Nora and for uh, Dante Marks. Oh wow, <laughs> that's 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 oddly specific. Let me see. Um, I'm gonna start with Dante Marks. I would choose Kevin James. I think he would be perfect for Dante. Oh, Marks. that's a great um, choice. And actually, for Andrea Marks, uh, his sister. I know that question wasn't asked, but I just feel I just got to get this out. Um, I, it's close between Anne Hathaway and Jamie Presley. Anyone who's a fan of the old My Name is Earl mm -hmm, reruns, Jamie, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> I think she would be perfect. Um, Grandma Nora, I would love to see Leslie Uggams play Grandma Nora. Oh, that's a great choice. And uh, for Ray, I, I'm asked this question all the time. I could not tell you. I'm the natural choice, but I've got a little <laughs> bit too much gray. Um, I there are so many people that could do the part. There are so many talented people that could do it. Just I mean, 
you know, you, you, you throw a dime in the middle of a crowd, that guy could play Ray. There are just so many talented people that could do it. I, I, I'm not even going to say. Whoever they come up with, I'm sure it's going to be great. Well, you know, Mark Hamill is still playing Luke Skywalker. <laughs> so <laughs> stranger Ooh, things have happened recently. True. Yeah. Computer graphic. Yeah. Okay, yeah. They could generate some of this gray out. Yeah. Just for men. It might work. <laughs> Um, so um, I would love to share another question. This one is from an MFA student. Um, could you share a bit about your journey from the freshman manuscript to getting picked up by a major publishing house? And you did share a little bit about you had this moment of going back perhaps to the drawing board and, and working again, but maybe you could share a little bit more about what that process was and and how you managed to create something that I don't think anyone would guess was a freshman novel. Oh, wow. Thank you. Um, absolutely. Um, a lot of trial and error, just constant, constant edits constantly and just, just not giving up. There's so many, when I first started writing, it was, I, I, I read everything online. What do I do? What do I do? Be prepared to be rejected hundreds of times and it does happen and you just can't get discouraged and some of the best advice that I ever received was to write honestly and write what you know I know music and to write honestly if you don't believe it how can you expect someone else to believe it you know it's, it's got to be it's got to come from the heart whatever it is that you're writing if you're passionate about science fiction then you need to show everyone exactly how passionate about it you are because there's someone out there who appreciates it just as much and you have to appeal to that person at, at the same time appealing to people who are not so into it but you might you know inspire them you never know um and i took every bit of criticism that i was mm -hmm. given i let a ton of people read what do you think about this does this make sense how about this what about you know every opportunity that I could get the uh, manuscript in front of someone to read, I did every single chance I got. And I took all the critiques and criticisms, take nothing personally, nothing personally. Um, just, just take it all and, and take what you will take, what you need, use what you can use and just go from there. And I also had a terrific agent who, who believed in, in the work and, uh, my literary, the literary agents that I submitted to a lot, you know, I got a lot of rejections and it was, you know, the first one, not, not they rejected it. Okay. That's fine. That's totally fine. I'm not going to give up. I know it's a good story. I know it is. I'm going back and reading as I'm writing chapters and I'll go back to chapter one and I'm getting behind in my writing because I started chapter one and start reading again. And I'm so into it. I know it's a good story. Um, just, just go with your gut and don't give up. Don't give up. That's beautiful advice. And uh, while you are sharing that advice, um, I'm, I, I want to talk a little bit about one of the most relatable qualities of Ray. And we see him throughout and sometimes, you know, really wrestling with these feelings of perceived inadequacy, right? Like this mm -hmm. imposter syndrome that I think so many of us really have to negotiate in our own lives. Mm -hmm. How common do you think this is among musicians of color um, in the classical space? And what advice might you have for young people who are really trying to figure this out? Excellent question. I think it's it's all too common. It's very sad. It's 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 all too common. Um, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I know from my own personal experience, I never really got 
they you know you don't get the accolades that the other people do you have to work so hard and it's like why am i working so hard at this why am i putting everything i've got into it and only getting half of the results um just the resilience that you have to have never you started it for a reason you started your musical journey for a reason and and hopefully that reason was because you loved it and you've got to keep that you've got to do it because you love it and i got some really good advice um from a fellow string player who said, you know, play for yourself. You started it because you loved it and do it for yourself. And if you're doing it for yourself, you know, you're automatically going to, you're not going to want to do any halfway do something. Oh my goodness. That's a waste of time. Uh, always, always, always do your absolute best. Not just when people are watching, not just when you think it's going to count towards something, always, all the time. And you will get to where you want to be. It just takes a ton of hard work. If it's easy, it's not worth doing. It's not going to be worth doing. Just stick to it. Do not let anyone tell you that you can't do it. Absolutely. Um, so we have a couple of uh live questions or questions from the the live audience that I'd love to posit to you. Right. Uh here's the first one. The slave quarter section, in particular, the runaway brother of Leon was so horrific, it haunts me. Is that a story pulled from a family's real oral history? Did you do any historical research on your flashbacks? That is chapter 33. Um, I've gotten a lot of comments on chapter 33. It is a very powerful and difficult to read chapter. Um, I actually toned it down. That That's the toned down version that made it into the book. Um, I knew just, and this takes us, this is a whole big thing about, you know, American history. A lot, a lot of times, at least when I was in school, you get, okay, slavery was bad. Black people were enslaved. They had to pick cotton in the fields and then they were freed by Abe Lincoln and that's <laughs> it, <laughs> you know, and you don't get the gory details. You don't get the brutality. You don't understand just how, um, just, just how horrible, just how horrific the conditions were for uh, slaves back in the day. And it just, I mean, I wanted that sense of realism. I want people to understand, you know, they're reading about discrimination. They're reading about racism. You know, we've got to go all the way back in order to heal. You've got to acknowledge these things. And it really was an acknowledgement um, on my part for what my ancestors had to go through. And I pulled a lot of that from just what I knew. And I did a, a small bit of research on, you know, just some of the cruel tactics that the, the slave masters would, would enact. And a lot of it, it was, it was, uh, I wanted to make it, I wanted to make it sentimental. I wanted to make it as real as possible. And like I said, that is the toned down version. So don't shy away from chapter 33. It's, it's going to be tough to read, but don't shy away from it. Absolutely. Um, so the next live question is this. My mom purchased this book for me because she was grabbed by the cover art as it faced out at Moon Palace Books. Shout out to Moon Palace in Minneapolis. What up, Moon I, Palace? <laughs> I think she's silly, but I think she's also right. What say does an author have in their cover illustrations? Interesting. I am in love with that cover. I love yeah. it. That was the first cover that they actually uh, showed me for, you know, my approval. And I, I have to say, my team is terrific. They said, do you like this? And I was like, what do you mean? Do I like this? This is fantastic. Of course <laughs> I like it. Yeah, that's amazing. 
I also get a lot of questions. Is that you in the picture? No, that's not me. But uh, um, they they come up with the concept and the design. And once they present it, they presented it to me. It's like, hey, do you like it? Are you good with it? I only had one. Uh, I'm actually looking at a blown up poster of it over here in my office. Um, I had one one um, request. It, to me, the, the figure in the F hole looking out was just a little bit... You, I think it's androgynous right now, but it was mm -hmm. just a little bit too feminine looking. There was like a lot of eyeliner and, and like lip gloss. It's like, can we just tone that down a little bit? So you need to know, don't know if it's a guy or a girl, you know. Right. So, yeah, that was the only, uh, but they did actually ask me what I thought about it. And, you know, the cover is fantastic and I loved it. Yeah, I did too. It, it, it really does grab you immediately. And it, it lets those of us who are, inclined to read a story that is set in the orchestral space that this is for you. And I, I really did find it very, very gripping. Another structural question for you, start to finish, how long did it take you to write the book? <laughs> All right, I hope everybody's sitting down and don't get mad at me. Please remember <laughs> this was the summer of 2020. I was eating a lot and doing nothing else. <laughs> And this was a story that I've been carrying around for a long time, and I, I loved it. So it only took me two and a half months. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I write fast, and, you know, this is it's an important subject that I'm very passionate about, so it, it all came really easily. Yeah, that's really, really impressive. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm sort of curious about... Um, a little bit with the writing process relative to maintaining the the rest of your your very busy professional life how did you carve out the the time to write it uh, or maybe you didn't have to it, it sounds like maybe there was that was sort of conducive uh to writing um did you find that you were able to learn about the the writing process pick up new efficiencies or identify challenges that for your future book projects, and I certainly hope there will be future ones that, you know, won't exist in the same way because of this process. <laughs> wow, that was a terrific question. Um, COVID really facilitated a lot of my writing schedule, you know, because there's nothing else to do. And uh, as a teacher, you know, I was, I was teaching lessons over Zoom for a long time. And you know, that only works for so long. And it's just, you know, and, and, and as a musician, I was accustomed to sitting down for long periods of time, practicing, you know, <laughs> I, I used to do three and a half hours every day, that was nothing, you know, so sit down for a couple of hours and write, that was no big deal. Like, yeah, I can do that. That's no sweat. Um, so in, in, in the writing process, I, I had to outline everything, you know, there, mm -hmm. there are flashbacks in the book. And, the structure that I initially came up with, I had to do a lot of readjusting and, and I talked it over with my agent, you know, to talk about the pacing of the book. We don't want it to slow down. And if this is here, it's going to slow down too much and let's you know, mix it up a little bit. So I got some really good advice as far as pacing is concerned. Um, and in future books, I try to follow the same pattern. My second book is, is being edited right now. And um, I use the same structure, you know, it's, um, it involves some flashbacks and and the basically the same outline of uh, I, I kind of do it like a symphony. You know, you have the opening mm -hmm. and then the middle two movements and then the fast paced uh, everything comes at the end. And that's that's how I like to structure it. And I think that it's going to work out for book two and book three is right here that I'm going to get started on this summer. Wow, that's very exciting. Um, so the the next live question reads as follows. 
I heard you on All Things Considered, but came in late, so I'm glad to hear you here today. Can you recap in brief how hearing Mozart as a wee one really inspired your musical journey? It sounded like a powerful story, um, and I regret tuning in too late. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can actually check uh, to, the, to the questionnaire. You can actually, uh, questionnaire, I don't even know if that was right. Uh, it sounded good, let's go with it. Um, to, the, to the person who asked the question, uh, it's that it, you can catch that entire interview on my website, brendanslocum.com, if, if you want. Um, uh, the Mozart connection, it's I when I was in third grade, my music teacher, Miss Holmes, played an excerpt from Mozart Symphony number 40. And she said, You'll always know this is Mozart by this little song. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's a Mozart. And I was like, <laughs> It's a bird, it's a plane, it's a Mozart. That is the dopest thing I've ever heard. Oh my gosh, I love it. And I, I'd never heard anything like that before. And I was just fascinated by that, that style of music. You know, growing up with my siblings, we would listen to the radio. My mom worked at the hospital, she, she was an 11 to 7 shift. And, you know, we'd wake her up at 10 o'clock and up prior to 10 o'clock, it's, it's, you know, we're listening to the radio. We're just sitting there. We listen to Queen, to ABBA, to Kansas, Boston, Marvin Gaye, the Commodores, LT, everybody. And we knew everything. And, and I hadn't heard any classical music. So when I heard that, it just, I mean, it just took over and it was an amazing thing. And I'm really, really grateful that she was my music teacher. That's a beautiful story. I, I love hearing that there are other people who remember <laughs> their elementary school music teachers. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, did you go shortly from there to beginning on violin? Did you start on a different instrument? How exactly did you land where you landed? Well, you, you probably remember, I'm a man of a certain age, but you may remember uh, back in the day we had, we played recorders and auto harps. That's how mm -hmm. old I am. We did auto harps and um, it, it just made sense to me as an elementary kid. And um, it was always fun. I always, I just, it was just fun to me. And in fifth grade, I had the opportunity to start on violin um, through a public school music program, which is I'm a staunch advocate for public school music yeah. in every capacity, public school arts in general. And um, that experience, it, 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 you know, it took me to where I am. It, it took me to college. It saved my life. It took me around the world. It's given me experiences that I never would have had. Um, so being able to play violin in fifth grade, you know, not you know, just learning how to play the violin in fifth grade was a life-changing experience. Um, that's, that's a beautiful thing to hear is, were these experiences um, things that sort of moved you towards becoming a music educator yourself? Yes, but I'm going to be 100% honest and I'll, I'll make a confession. The main reason I wanted to be a teacher is so that I could get the summers off. <laughs> I'm not even going to lie. You know, I, Hey, I don't have to work during the summer and I get paid. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I just, I loved music and I loved um, seeing what not only it could do for me, but for other people. And, you know, as an elementary music school teacher, when I was teaching elementary school, just my, my kindergartners, you know, they love you anyway, but you will always be that one. I taught my kindergartners, I've been working on the railroad, which has mm -hmm. its roots in classical music. You know, it's from the Poet and Peasant Overture by Von Supe. And um, just, just 
the fact that they will always remember that song and I will always be, they will always have my name in their hearts because I taught them that song. It's one of the first ones that they learned. Just that feeling is just, it's wonderful. And they're going to get so much out of that for the rest of their lives. And it's just, it's just a fantastic feeling. Absolutely. Um, so one of my most favorite parts of the novel involve Ray's response to being asked to play Gershwin. And <laughs> <laughs> you'll totally get why I'm laughing. You read the book. <laughs> uh, yes. And, you know, working as a black person in the opera, right, there are a myriad of responses that you know my close colleagues frequently have to the the same question right um and i also really appreciated his avowed preference for uh samuel college taylor and william Grantsdale, two of my all-time favorites mm -hmm. um to interested parties in the audience who are some black composers that you might recommend uh, definitely Samuel Coleridge Taylor and, and, and one of my absolute favorites as well, William Grant still is so underrated, so yeah. underrated. He has written so much good music and there's so much more to him than just the Afro-American symphony. There's so mm -hmm. much more. His chamber music is incredible. You know, his, his suite for violin and piano. I was not kidding when I put that in the book, it is an amazing piece of music. And every time I play it, you know, it just, it just it transports you. Um, and uh, Florence Price, just phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, there, let me see. Oh, geez, you got me on the spot. I'm thinking, I think it's coming to say this for Yes. Yes. Those three. Those are my top three, actually. Uh, William Grant still is at the very top. Florence Fry has some really good stuff. I like her stuff, too. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I want to move to another question uh, from the live audience. Are there any books that you would recommend for a book club that ate up the violin conspiracy and is hungry for more fiction or even biographies, especially those that immerse you in the world of music? Wow, that is a terrific question. And I am actually sad to say, I, I, I don't know of too many more books that are music related along the same lines uh, as a violent conspiracy that give you a real in-depth look at what, what it's like um, for musicians of color. I, I can't say that I, I, I know any, um, but I will do some research and I'll probably shoot you an email just to get to that because, you know, I, I don't want to disappoint anyone. I'm sorry, I'm not up on my, uh, I should have checked that one out ahead of time. My bad. Um, but I will definitely, and I'll, maybe, you know what, I'll write another one. I'll write another book. My, my second book, I, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a minute. I'll just give a spiel about my second book whenever the prompt comes up, but uh, yeah. Well, you know what, we can take this moment as a prompt, because there are several questions in the chat oh, about okay. your next project. Um, and relatedly, will we ever get to see more of Mr. McMillan? Good question. Um, I don't think that it's out of the question for me to write another Ray McMillan story. Um, there's just, I mean, it, it, we just got a snippet of his life. There's so many more stories that uh, need to be told about uh, Black musicians. Um, and, and, and what they, the triumphs as well as the struggles. So uh, there probably will be along the line. Um, and my, my second book is actually called The Composer's Last Score. It's not mm -hmm. overkill on music, I promise, I promise, <laughs> I promise. You don't have to be a musician to, to enjoy it. Um, it's a story of a, a fictional composer 
uh, Frederick Delaney, who's America's preeminent composer. He's bigger than Bach and Beethoven and Mozart combined all across the world. Everyone knows his music. His 150th anniversary is coming up and his family who runs his foundation is planning a huge celebration. So they hire a musicologist who uh, is doing research into Delaney and why his affinity for the black community is so strong. He finds out that uh, Delaney may not have written any of his music and it was potentially appropriated by a black woman who we now know would be living with autism. And the family will stop at nothing to keep this info a secret. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really, really awesome. I, I love it. I love the story. I absolutely love it. If you think you're going to get book three out of me, I'm dying to tell. Oh, I can't. I can't. It's going to be just as good. <laughs> but Composer's Last Score, I'm really, really excited about uh, having that one, having people read it. I'm really excited about it. Awesome, um, as am I. Um, so another question uh, from our live audience, what is your favorite piece to play and or conduct? Hmm. To play, my favorite solo piece is any of the Four Seasons by Vivaldi. I'm, I'm especially uh, fond of winter and summer. I perform those a lot. And orchestrally, I love Dvorak Symphony Number no. 8. That's my mm. absolute favorite symphony, hands down. Yeah, and to conduct, I'm a Schubert fan. Um, I, I I've never had the opportunity to conduct Schubert nine, but uh, that's that's my bucket list to do Schubert number nine. I love it. Beautiful piece of music. Absolutely, and hopefully some folks out there in decision making capacities have heard about your interest. So bring it, bring it. I got my own baton. Bring it. <laughs> Um, another very popular audience question. There are a couple of uh, different iterations of this. My book club um, reads everything recommended by Good Morning America's Book Club, uh, which is what brought us to your novel this month. I'm so glad because it's stellar. Um, how did you learn about the GMA selection? Have there been other accolades, reviews, opportunities, or even famous fans that have really made you say, oh, wow. I say, oh, wow, every single day, <laughs> every day. It's my, my face hurts so much from smiling all the time. Um, I found out uh, through about GMA, my, my, my editor called me. He called me at, at a really good time because I was going through a bad, bad moment. And um, mm. I found out way early and, and GMA uh, actually made their decision very early on after the manuscript was submitted. So that was shocking to me. Um, again, I was just, I just wanted someone to like the story and I'm, I'm, I'm just amazed at the response that it's gotten. Um, it has been incredible. And just that good morning, America, you know, it's, it's good morning, America. And, and they liked the book and it was just, I don't know, it was, it was terrific. And I forgot what the other part to that was because I was smiling and so hard about uh um, just, uh, I, I actually think you may have answered it. It was, okay. it was also just, um, were there any others in particular that stood out to you that made you say, okay, this, this feels uh, really good. Yeah. Some of the, uh, celebrity endorsements, just, you know, some of the writers that, that read it and, and, and their comments just, you know, I, 
The Bone Collector, written by mm-hmm. Jeffrey Deaver. I sat in a conversation with him a couple of weeks ago, and you know, I, I'm in the middle of the conversation. I just stopped and I was like, "Okay, I'm having a fanboy moment." I'm sitting <laughs> next to Jeffrey Deaver, and then he turns to me and says, "Are you kidding? I'm sitting next to Brendan Slocum. <laughs> what? Are you, you're just being funny. You're yanking my chain, dude. No, just." I mean, the, the celebrity endorsements have been uh, uh, amazing. The fact that Misty Copeland liked the book and, and it, you know, I'm, I'm like, okay. And <laughs> just, the, uh, I don't know, just Alexander McCall Smith, who wrote number one ladies detective agency, you know, he emailed me personally to tell me how much he enjoyed the book. And I just, I'm still geeking over that one. All right, okay. Yeah. All right. And, you know, the fact that people ask me, to read their stuff and to give them a blurb. I'm like, who, I, what do you, do you know who I am really? Cause what, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's incredible. It really is incredible. Um, yeah. You know, the, the pull quote from, from Misty was, was like a, a lovely thing to see. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like there's something really special and kind of being able to recognize that, so much of what you've been able to depict about the experience of of black classical musicians probably very closely mirrors you know what black ballet dancers mm-hmm. black academics so many other people who are sort of still in this space of trailblazing even now oh, yeah. into the 21st yeah. century mm-hmm. are experiencing did you have any thoughts about maybe those connections before um, you started reading the reviews and getting some of these positive responses in, in all honesty, no, because I, I, I simply wanted someone just to enjoy the book. You know, I, I yeah. never thought about the impact that this would have. I just knew from my own personal experience, this is how it is. And I want people to understand this is how it is. And it's not me whining and it's not mm-hmm. me just being overly dramatic or just, you know, it, it's it's none of that. This is a real experience. And, and just getting the validation um, has just been tremendous. And just people now, now their eyes are open. I like to say people's eyes have been opened and all that can do is propel things forward. And I'm, I'm really happy that that has, uh, you know, begun to take root and it's, it's, it's amazing to do. And I'm happy that I had a little bit of something to do with that. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I've, I've noticed over the years is that folks who I know who are very, very uh, gifted in one artistic discipline are frequently gifted in multiple artistic disciplines. Do you have any other hidden talents beyond uh, writing that you are newly inspired to explore? (laughs) Nothing new. Um, I'm actually a singer in a band. I'm the singer in a rock band and I play uh, keyboards and I uh, am an avid comic book collector and reader you can see by my uh posters and my stuff here and i just got a box ah, with a brand new statue in it that i can't wait to open (laughs) i am i'm just you know i'm i i just it's i'm just having the time of my life and uh i i love i love what makes me happy and i hope that people can actually start to 
appreciate what it is that makes them happy and really go for it. it there's nothing wrong with being happy. There's nothing wrong with being happy. If reading comic books makes you happy, then do it. Go read a comic book. If playing kickball makes you happy, go and do it. If singing to the top of your voice some terrible song that only <laughs> you know the words to, if it makes you happy, do it. And that's what I'm hoping, you know, people will, will I'm, I've learned that. And it's so important. And it, it makes a tremendous difference in the quality of life. Uh, absolutely. And and you can't see what's behind me because of my silly Zoom screen, but the X-Men are to my left oh. and the Avengers are to my right. So I wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Who's your favorite X-Men? Dazzler. Dude. Oh my god. Yes. Yeah, underrated. Right? Totally underrated. Right. I'm waiting for her. Yeah, totally. I, I got you. Dude, wait, yeah. wait, hold that, hold that thought, hold that thought, and wait for it. Ah, uh, my dazzler's in my closet. Sorry, I have a statue of her okay sorry i did too I'm, i wonder if it's the same one but i will sorry, take us back to the question i'm sorry i'm sorry <laughs> for those interested dazzler actually is a musical character though so we are technically on theme um <laughs> so a couple of questions just about um your your work as as an educator and your family so first um what has been the reaction of your current and former students and your colleagues about this other facet of your career? Uh, my students have been so incredibly supportive. You know, I did an event here in, I'm in Washington, D.C., but I did an event in Fairfax and, you know, a, a dozen of my old students, and I'm talking like, you know, they're in their 30s and 40s now. They, they came out to see me. And just the fact that they did that is, it just speaks volumes about them. And it just, I, I, all I could do is, was smile and tears are coming to my eyes. It's so good to see them. And um, they're really, really, it, the fact that they say, I'm so proud of you. I'm like, mm. I should be saying that to you. And I've said that to you a million <laughs> times and you're saying that to me, just, you know, it really makes me feel good. And, and my, my former colleagues and some of my current colleagues, they're really just, they're, they're just thrilled beyond words. They're like, oh my gosh, Brendan, we're just so happy for you. It's it, the book is great. And, 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 you know, you're great and we love you. And it's like, oh, okay. You're just being nice, but no, it's, it's, it's amazing. The response has been amazing. Uh, that's beautiful. Um, and your family, do you come from a, a musical family? And has your career inspired, uh, maybe in the subsequent generation in your family, anyone into music, whether classical or not? I like to say that I am the trailblazer in my family for music. Um, I was the first one, well, my older brother, actually, he played trumpet in uh, middle school. And he was kind of okay. He he didn't go on to high school and do it. So I started playing violin and my sister played cello. I think because I started playing violin, we were actually in the same class my senior year, her sophomore year of high school. And yeah, that was always fun having your sister tell your mom every single thing that happened at school. Yeah, that's great. Um, and my youngest brother, who unfortunately uh, passed away last mm -hmm. year, he was the most talented out of all of us. If I had an inkling of his talent, I would be doing uh, amazing things right now. He was so incredibly talented. Um, played oboe and French horn, and he was also into composition. And he could arrange anything. He could arrange, you know, a Bach cantata and make it sound like anything you wanted it to. And I just, uh, if I had that much of his talent, and um, yeah, I just lost him way too soon. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you. 
Um, so maybe we have time for just one or two more questions. Um, and this one is particularly interesting to me. Um, given your skill set, has anyone ever suggested a combination musical performance and book signing? Yes. And I did one of those in Fairfax, Virginia, a couple of weeks ago. I, I, I got a bunch of my friends together and we played uh, four pieces. We played four uh, small ensemble pieces and we did a little concert and afterwards had a conversation and a book signing and it was awesome. I, it was great. It was so much fun and everybody had a good time and, and people bought books. So that was always nice too. It was a nice little plus. So it was, it was fun. It was a great, great opportunity. I still get to do what I love to do in every capacity. So it was amazing. That, that's, that's really, really fantastic. And, and I will say, as I was reading the, the novel, there are many times I thought this would make a, a great opera, right? The, the story yeah. has that kind of scale and it would be a very interesting way also to sort of capture some of the musical pieces. All right. Uh, I can definitely make a cameo in that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think our last question for the evening will be this one. Um, what are you reading right now, comic book or otherwise? <laughs> comic book or otherwise. Okay, I'm going to start with comic books. I'm reading the Dark Ages uh, storyline right now. Um, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Avengers, X-Men, all of the above, and it's really good. Uh, I'm a little bit behind because I've been doing so much other stuff. And I just finished reading um, a, two books, actually. Um, I just finished Riker's Calling by Rico Lamoureux. Uh, it's a, a novella about um, a detective. It's really good. It's really fast paced. I'm enjoying it. And I just finished um, Hanith Abdurraqib's A Little Devil in America. And when I tell you that is my new favorite book, that is my new favorite book. Incredible read. I suggest I, everybody go out and pick it up. It's a great book. Great book. Thank you for those recommendations. I hope everybody got those and will be attentive to taking a look at those. Um, but I think that may be all that we have time for this evening. But I really want to thank you, Brendan. This has been such a fun conversation. I know you have a very busy March, so we're really grateful that you were able to squeeze us in. And hopefully you will consider the Twin Cities for the next musical book signing event that you would like to have. Well, I can't believe this hour flew by like that. That was just incredibly quick. That's how you know it was a good time. I had a blast. And thank you so much, Lee, for your uh, thoughtful questions and, and this fantastic interview. And I, I had a great time. And Minneapolis is on my radar. We will hold you to that. All right. Thank you again, Brendan, and have a great night, everyone. That wraps up our Hennepin County Library event with Brendan Slocum. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Victoria Christopher Murray. Victoria Christopher Murray boasts more than 30 books to her credit and is as versatile as she is prolific. The Personal Librarian, co-authored with Marie Benedict, is her first foray into historical fiction. It chronicles the career of trailblazing Black curator Bella DaCosta Green. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, 
Remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.